Okay, I haven't been able to sleep well for the last three days because of today's guest, Ivy Zellman. She alone called the top of the housing market in 05 and correctly called the bottom in 2012, reinforcing her dominant position within the industry. She also recently published a book right here called Gimme Shelter, Hard Calls and Soft Skills from a Wall Street Trailblazer. Ivy, thank you for making my Christmas wish come true and, uh, and spending some time with us today. Well, I'm very honored and appreciate the opportunity. It's great to be with you, Kevin. So I love origin stories and our origin story, at least from my recollections, was from 2010. So no, no harm, no foul here if you do not remember, because I, I was probably completely forgettable back then. But you were attending the March Madness tournaments, I think in Indianapolis that year. And we had just recently started participating in your survey. For those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Ivy and her team sends out a regular survey to builders around the country, and all types of companies around the country now, actually, to get input of data. And I was responsible for filling that, that out. And we had just done a press release on The Wire about selling 26 homes in a single day in Pittsburgh in 2010. And I think because we were a new participant in your survey, you called me up live from the tournament because they were screaming in the background. And you're like, hey, I just I wanted to give you a call because I know you sent us data. But how the hell are you able to sell 26 homes in a day in 2010 in Pittsburgh? Like the armpit, no offense. I mean, I lived there for eight years. We love it's a great city. But, but how did you do that? And um, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to her. Uh, but you, you, were, you were very kind and warm. And I think you pinged me one other time as a follow-up to that. But that, that was when I first knew that I had to keep track of where you were going and what you were doing and what you were saying. Good memory, a very good memory, but you know, pretty unusual in that period to have that type of early indicator that things were changing. Yeah, and it was it was about manufacturing urgency in an, in an unurgent market for us, and and that was truthfully the other part that was interesting was I started to explain in more detail than I'm sure you were asking for <laughs> how this was happening, and you're like, oh, okay. I get it. So you're you're creating urgency and causing a buzz, and and I was like, yeah, I guess that, that in a nutshell, that is it. And you're like, okay, I, I got to get back to the game, but it was still my my brush with fame. <laughs> okay, so I've I've grouped our my questions for you in a couple different groupings. The first one is what I'm going to call the the most boring questions, because I, I'm not truthfully as interested in your predictions as most people tend to be. I mean, we got to get out of the way because that's why people are watching is they want a prediction. <laughs> but okay. I'm way more interested in trying to help people understand how you come to your predictions and how you think and process information, especially in ways that let you continue to be free from um, bias as much as possible. And so the most important, but maybe the most boring question that everyone wants to know is uh, your forecast for 2022 in residential new construction. Well, we are um, expecting another strong year of starts, and we've had this year constraints to get supply to market. So while we're growing at a double-digit pace, we don't expect that to really slow that much. We would expect you know starts to be ranging in the high single digits, and actually that continue into 23, but at a decelerated level. So we'll still see growth. The pipeline of what's coming and, and the land grab, as well as the you know community count, uh, that will start to accelerate is really the driving force behind that because there's a lot of production that just is not able to get to market right now. So the yeah. outlook is pretty still pretty positive. I think home prices, on the other hand, we're going to start to see moderate as affordability pressures mount. And I think we're going to see overall demand moderate. 
in, in sort of conjunction with supply coming to market, which will likely therefore result in that moderation of pricing. Yeah. I mean, the recency bias that builders have, I feel like has never been stronger in that talking to a builder in Texas and they're concerned because they have a single inventory home, thousand unit a year builder, single inventory home that hasn't sold in four days and everyone's freaking out. And so <laughs> I think that's in, in watching the other interviews and, and hearing people uh, talk about forecasts, people are using words like uh, devastation, moderation, et cetera. And, and they sound scarier than it sounds like you're saying, like there's going to be a, a, a comeback to a more uh, regular environment, which yeah, might yeah, feel yeah. very negative compared to where we were, especially in Q1 and Q2 of, of this year. Right. But as long as interest rates kind of hang tight, you feel like we're, we're going to come in for a softer landing next year than maybe some might. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of our forecast right now is contingent on rates not moving higher. I think if rates were to move higher, that's a different discussion, but it's really about the, the speed and magnitude of the supply ramp that we'll see in the market. I think that, as you know, the builders, you know, overall land buying and new communities coming on the market in the beginning of the pandemic, everything just got shut down. So there was a period of massive uncertainty. So builders weren't buying land. They were canceling option contracts that they had written. Everything just was, you know, plummeting initially. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the traffic started coming back and the sales started coming back. So there's been this um, inability to bring new communities to market to, uh, to replace the ones they've been absorbing at such a record pace. So now they're in this frenzy to get as much land as they can, even though land inflation is really massive. And they're even admittedly when they're underwriting, you know, they're kind of nervous and they're saying, you know, we know our mar margins are not going to be sustainable with all the cost inflation, not just in land, but in labor as well as in materials, but yeah. we got to feed the machine. So there's just this, you know, go, 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 go attitude. And so if demand remains pretty healthy, I think the sort of worst case is that we'll see more incentives. We'll see some pricing pressure in markets where supply is coming at the fastest level or the most significant in absolute terms. But I don't expect any type of repeat of the great financial crisis, but I do think there'll be profitability squeezing uh -huh. and probably more competitive dynamics. You know, you go into DFW or you go to Phoenix, you go to Austin, you know, Austin housing starts in 21 are like 30% above where they were at the peak of the last great financial boom. And the same thing in DFW, we have 60,000 starts, I think 49,000 was the peak in the prior period. Now you say, well, you know, the population and households are, are, are there's more people, but what people don't really appreciate is that it's actually decelerating level of households in Texas relative to the prior decade. So it's not so much the absolute, you really have to focus on the rate of change and the level of starts is much bigger in a rate of change in an aggressively increasing way yeah. than level of households that's actually still really strong household growth. So for Texas, as an example, household growth was up 18% in 2010 to 2020, but it was down from a peak of 23% in, in the 90s to 2000, 21% from 2000, 2010. So as that's decelerating, you have to make sure that your supply is also, you know, not growing too much above that new yeah. level. And in places like Austin, also the amount of investor activity in comparison to prior years of growth is also unusual 
for that state? Yeah, I think that just speculation is rampant everywhere. You know, it's kind of like I talked to whether it's your Uber driver or the person who works in a restaurant, people are trading, you know, crypto and there's just there's just euphoria everywhere. And the same thing with investors speculating in, in residential real estate, because you know what? I don't want to be just long equities. Maybe I don't want to just be in crypto. I want to, hey, this housing market is on fire. Let me speculate and buy, you know, homes that I can then hold and rent out. And we yeah. see yeah, and I, part of it's diversification of an asset bubble potentially in crypto and people saying, how do I get risk off there and put it in something more real? And I, I heard on CNBC in passing and I have never been able to verify it. So I, I hesitate to say it, but someone said a stat of something around a fourth of all down payments currently being used in a certain price range and age bracket was, was profits coming from crypto, which seemed hyperbolic in some way, but anyway, okay. So I hadn't heard that, but that... You know, either that or government stimulus checks. We have a lot of people that have benefited from you know, the the transfer of wealth and and yep. stimulation or that the economy has enjoyed, and people that hadn't really been paying you know rent and their mortgage are have accumulated significant savings. So yeah. that, that's that is an echo of the GFC that I I do hear is is we are now back at the problem of having too much money in the world essentially. So we did ask for folks to submit questions and Brian from Eastwood Homes, Steve from Fisher Homes and Zalman from Summit Homes all kind of requested a follow-up uh, just talking about regionality that you're seeing and, and kind of the pros and cons of the Southeast, Midwest, Southwest, Northeast markets. Any Anything that you want to... There's no question that, you know, it's almost as simple as saying the red states are much better positioned than blue states, you know, although, you know, you do have um, some anomalies there that don't fit that per se. But I do think that, you know, it's not a secret that the Southeast and the Southwest have the strongest household growth, even admittedly, if it's decelerating. So I think that the builders and developers have all kind of concentrated their uh, capital allocation to those markets. And therefore, while extremely healthy from a relative perspective, it's all about how much supply is coming. So the the risk is, is that everyone is saying, I want to be in the growth markets. I want to be outside of the Midwest. I don't want to build. It's like everyone wants to be an Apple and Amazon and Tesla, right? It's kind of the same. It's just, I hate to say it, but builders tend to, you know, be a little bit like sounding too derogatory, but cheap, you know, they they no, that's that's correct. That's one hundred percent correct. That's that's how everyone sells everything to a builder. Is you just say, "Did you know Builder X is doing Y?" And they're like, "They are." Well, it's it's like a FOMO thing, you know. Yeah. It's like right now the new hottest thing is built for rent. If you're not doing built for rent, you know, you must something's wrong. You're 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 missing out. Or if you're not, you know, in let's say Boise today, or if you're not in the mountain states, everyone's going there. I better go there. You know, when when KB announced that they were going into Boise. And we're now, in our opinion, we're we're in peak territory. We're, oh, yeah. we're level of land is to me the key to understanding housing. And when my land developers are laughing at what builders, new entrants are coming in and paying for land, and they wouldn't touch it, those are that's a ding ding ding. You ask what goes into my forecasting, that's a piece of it. Having that boots on the ground intelligence, but I am more bullish, like the Midwest. It's interesting because the housing market, like I spoke at the university of Wisconsin, uh, their real estate conference virtually. And I wanted to be smart in advance of that meeting. So I reached out to builders in Wisconsin and tell me what's going on. And the first thing about Wisconsin, that's really nice as Ohio is there's really not that many public builders there. 
And when, when you think about the landscape, whether it be a market like Wisconsin or Alabama, where publics are really underrepresented, it's better for the market. It's a healthier dynamic because the publics will come in with shareholder capital, bid up land prices, start to add a tremendous amount of supply, and they don't play well in the sandbox because if the market gets a little less robust, they'll do whatever they have to do to move that inventory. So, but you know, you still have land inflation in, in Madison and Milwaukee up 10, 15%. Nationally, land prices are up 34%, according to our land development proprietary survey. So I think there are benefits to being in the Midwest, whether you're in you know, our great state of Ohio and you can take advantage of really where, okay, population growth has been relative depressed and household growth equally as depressed compared to other states, but there's still a base of population there that has a really old stock that they're dealing with. And, and the number one thing that millennials and, and young people that they, they look for is they want new. So I think that if it was me, I'd be the contrarian. I would be building in the markets where everyone else is sort of turning away from because I still think there's opportunities there. They they may not be as significant in terms of HPA longer term, but I think that you can create a little bit more of a contrarian opportunity that doesn't exist in other markets. It's somewhat counterintuitive that usually more players in a market makes the market function more properly. But in, in your case, I'm just trying to restate so I make sure... I'm processing everything you just said, which was awesome. You have these so many players in a market who must purchase, especially in the publics, where they can't say, we're just going to, it's getting a little expensive. We're going to slow things down and wait for a better opportunity because then their stock will take an immediate hit because they've got to keep that land in front of them almost no matter what. Yeah. And it's like, you know, builders, they buy land and build homes. What are they, what else are they going to do? That's what well, they, they need to start doing more if they don't want to all just become single family build for rent folks, I think. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, I think I heard the CEO of Meritage in a talk at the Builder 100 conference mention that they were going after a particular parcel and they were competing against other traditional builders. And then someone in the single family build for rent space just went ahead and offered 35% more and Norm, instead of just saying 5% more, 8%, it's like, no, 35, give it to me now. And he's like, I just want to call them up and say, don't screw up the market for everyone. Like outbid us if you want to outbid us, but you are right. completely pivoting uh, the land value. That's a new dynamic that is really fascinating to, you know, being an equity analyst and, and analyzing this, this dynamic of right now we've publicly aggregated with a deep dive thematic report we did on Build for Rent just this uh, fall, that at the time, $60 billion of capital had been publicly announced to pursue Build for Rent. And by the way, that's predominantly unlevered, some leverage, but predominantly unlevered. Wow. And since that publication, and call it late August, it's now $75 billion. And while $6 billion is actually leased up and $10 billion of the 75 is actually in development, that stuff's coming. And it's coming at, in our opinion, the level of inflation embedded in the land they've acquired. We just don't know how they're going to get to the returns that they promised their investors. But like everything, if you're an investor in today's euphoric market and you're raising money and your investors expect a return of, call it, you know, double digit unlevered or double digit, you know, high double digit levered, you, you've got to put that money to work. So the resi asset class is the prettiest girl at the dance. So that's where all the capital is, is, is trying to get allocated. 
but they're willing to pay up for that land so they can tell their investors, okay, we've deployed your money because, you know, Kevin, if you get, you know, a million dollars and you give it in a high net worth, let's say capital raise and debt fund, and you give them a million dollars and it's six months later, and you're like, well, did you guys invest the money? And they're like, you know, we haven't been able to invest it. We haven't thought we haven't found anything attractive. Yeah. That's not okay. Yeah, that, that's biblical anyway. The, you know, like hiding the talent is not what anyone's supposed to do. You're supposed to go out and, and use the talent. It's almost like a SPAC then. Like this money's been raised and they've got a window of time where they've got to start putting it to work. And when all the good companies are sold, then you start having companies that are questionable going public uh, in, in a similar fashion. Uh, one quick thing. Uh, this is fascinating. So you're taking me way off of my, my scripted questions. But one thing that always has hit me talking about the amount of increase in rental properties of all types is that in a recession, uh, a builder can, though painful, choose not to build. When a rental project's already been created and the capital's in the ground, you take your rent, I would imagine, to whatever you need to to keep it full. Right. Is there a dynamic there that could make a future downturn, whenever it comes, a more severe one, where those folks are going to take their rent down to a degree that forces people to, again, reset the, the rent versus buy affordability questions? Or, or I don't know if that question makes sense to you, but is that, is that a real phenomenon? Yeah, no, I think that you know, we have to appreciate shelter is shelter, whether you own it or you rent it. You know, it's a chessboard. All the pieces on the chessboard could be shifted. So if I'm a renter right now in, let's say, Phoenix, and I'm renting a four-bedroom, you know, three-bath, 2,000-square-foot home, and it's costing me $2,000 a month, and actually a home 10 minutes away might be four-bedroom, three-bath, 2,000-square-feet, but it's, you know, call it 1,800 a month just as an example. So it's more expensive to rent. And I really, I can't get approved for a mortgage. I don't have the down payment um, or I'm just not ready to commit to owning because I don't know the area or I'm in transition um, because I, you know, am, am figuring out whether I'm going to be staying in this market. What happens is that if the rents are coming under pressure, then you're going to have more people contemplate, well, maybe I don't want to be in a home ownership situation or I'm going to save enough money that I don't have to pay a rent. See, the thing about renting, it, it, we're not a renting nation. We're not a rental nation. People want to own homes. They want the American dream. And it's the only way we really can build long-term wealth. You know, I think about my best friend who I've known since eighth grade, and she lives in Salt Lake, and she didn't finish college. She had mother of three, six grandchildren now. She actually bought her house 30 years ago and used FHA. And that's the only wealth she has, actually has. The wealth crea creation through home ownership is the only thing she's going to be able to hand off to her, you know, her her kids and her grandchildren. Yeah. And you have you have a variable monthly rental payment. You're not creating long term wealth. So I think that people want home ownership, and the rental market, if rents come under pressure enough, and the the bill for rent guys can't hit their return thresholds. They might even start selling them to builders or trying to sell them to homeowners. And that's going to even magnify the yeah. supply that's in the market. So I think yeah. that we as a nation want homeownership. Consumers today are in, call it transitory situations. But I do think that today we have a true apples to apples comparison because now we have the same box that is literally being built in the same pod 
offered either for rent or for sale. The person may want to rent for a brief period, but ultimately I think they do seek that home ownership. If rents come down enough, maybe they'll choose to rent longer because it's not that um, the discrepancy isn't as significant, but right now it's more expensive to rent a single family home than own one. If you can get a mortgage approved. Right. And the narrative is that, well, everyone likes the idea of flexibility and other things, but I'm in agreement. I think um, it's one of those uh, white lies we tell ourselves. We don't have the means to buy that we would just rather rent. But it's funny that when rich people get rich, they tend to buy more real estate. They don't just rent homes all over the place. I think it's a, there's a, again, there's a renter by necessity. And when we think about um, the rental stock, whether it be multifamily or single family, I think that really where the um, lack of offering is in an affordable price point. So I think that we're, we're not putting build for rent product that's affordable. We have some management teams that call it workforce housing. And I'm like, <laughs> like that, that doesn't sound- Wall Street workforce housing, maybe. Yeah, but, yeah, maybe. So I, I think it's more just, this is a, this is a new shiny coin. Uh-huh. And, and people are appreciating that there is, it's a great product offering for the right segment of the market. But the question is, are we going to overbuild? Where are all the bodies going to come from? And in the demand and the, and the current clouding that we have in the market because of so many things that are not happening, like people aren't being foreclosed, people aren't being evicted, people haven't paid their student loan debt, people have been either savings because they weren't spending because the pandemic and they were home and locked down, or they got significant stimulus checks and unemployment benefits. So there's a lot of noise that's clouding the true underlying demand and appreciating yeah. what the dynamics are. At the same time, the ramp in supply is coming. It's like I jokingly say winter is coming. I mean, I'm talking to builders in DFW that build, you know, amongst in DFW, there's 75 production home builders. And they're like, the winter's coming. There's a lot of specs in the ground. And that's the other thing. Builders and the build for rent guys are doing more speculation. Yes. And, and therefore assuming it's a hope strategy. Well, and, and the really dangerous part there, when I, when I talk to builders, I say, you don't, you can't feel the ground beneath your feet. You're just looking at data points in the air, but you can't feel anything solid, especially when you're not choosing to sell until the home is finished and you're, and you started 150 specs at one time or more. That definitely makes me nervous. And the other thing that is clouding the data set is consumers have to they have to be on multiple lists for every community, for, for any purchase they want to make. And I don't think enough people are doing the math and saying that six different builders might have Kevin Oakley on their list. Kevin Oakley is only going to buy one house, but individually they're all looking at their data sets saying, look at this demand, look at this demand. But the right. demand is for one, not six. And I think that's causing people to get above their skis or beyond their skis. And they're okay as well with selling to investors. So the big oh, thing yeah. that focused on <laughs> is really the delineation between primary demand and non-primary. And people even on Wall Street, like clients of mine, they're like, why do you care? I'm like, what do you, why do I care? Because there's one that's sustainable and sticky and one that's likely to go away if the dynamics of the robust market starts to diminish. And when you think of the level of investors, so I was talking to a builder who builds you know, a few thousand homes a year, mid-Atlantic, Southeast, Southwest. And I said, so how many investors do you think you're selling to? Private investors. Let's not talk about the other <laughs> non-private. Let's just talk private investors. He goes, I'm going to guess it's about 20%. I'm like, doesn't, doesn't that concern you? He said, I'm not really concerned because I actually believe that they're unlike the prior cycle. These buyers are buying and they're holding. 
and they're going to... Okay, I I don't want to interrupt you, but this is a pet peeve of mine, is what everyone said prior to the GFC was homeowner, home values don't go down uh, and, and these consumers are, are making a wise investment. I think today it's, it is true in that credit scores and leverage and all those things are much better for the consumer buying of their own home they're going to live in. But institutions now seem to have caught what consumers had in 05, 06, and 07, where, where they are buying up large sums of homes because they have the capital to do so, and they have to do something with it. And they're saying to themselves, if I never have to sell, there's really zero risk. Like, if I never have to sell this asset and I'm just going to rent it, it grows. The, the initial capital I put in grows with inflation, and I get returns. This is amazing. But... But everyone keeps saying credit scores are high, credit scores are high, but these institutions don't, they don't get a credit check. They just pay cash and then it's theirs and they can afford to spend whatever amount they want on. And, and I, I think the, the risk there, albeit maybe small, is a bust in another part of the market that causes someone who thinks they were going to hold on to those, those homes forever to now have to raise capital where they can. And the other thing you're not thinking about, though, is that they might be paying cash up front, but they're leveraging after the fact. Oh, that's so true. Yes. There, there's no question that there's leverage in the system. We're not as concerned this cycle from the consumer's perspective because the consumer, because of Dodd-Frank's legislation right. in January 14, we have guardrails that regulate the mortgage industry that allows it to be sound. I mean, the FHA bar, bar, buyer, you know, they're, if they're buying right now, they're, they could be negative equity tomorrow if home prices were to stop this robust surge. So I do, I do think that there will be people that get caught in whatever correction that I think is inevitable yeah. of when, but the institutional investors are buying at, um, you know, a level of, of conviction that we have a massive deficit. There's yeah. anywhere forecasters out there saying there's three to 6 million units in the United States that we're short. And that premise gives them a whole lot of conviction if you build it, they're going to come indefinitely. We have price pricing such such a incredible amount of demand that pricing is almost inelastic because people have no choice; they got to live somewhere. And so this is the mentality yeah. of the capital that's coming into the space because they have to justify in some cases how they continue to bring more of these projects to market. And right now, it's like the only time people scream fire in an auditorium is when they actually see the fire. Right now, there's no fire; everything's great. Right. Right. But let's take your analysis a step further. So we know that about 40 to 50% of all starts are started right now as spec. Um, for the publicly traded companies, we account for 42% of new home sales. We also are tracking about 15 to 20% of new home sales uh, through the proprietary builder survey that we do, private builders, which is, oh, by the way, 95% correlated to publics. So we're able to track more than half the market. And what that speculation will mean is that, okay, they might not have a lot of specs completed on the ground that aren't selling right now. And they might even have a, a window where things start to moderate, but they're can, they've got money, capital, sewage in the ground. Once you get to a finished lot, even if you don't have a spec on it, it's costly. You're yeah. going to go vertical. You're going to build a house on it and you're going to try to move it and monetize it. So it's not just the specs on the ground. It's the capital that's been deployed. It's the the development that's already happening that would almost make you like, once you're pregnant, dude, you're, you're going to have that. Baby. Yeah. And I guess that's my, my thought is just that everyone in the institutional side, again, they, they're seeing it as they don't care if it's a liquid asset or not, because they don't plan to sell. 
But if Bitcoin goes to five grand or, or someone else gets highly levered and explodes and causes a mild contagion and you need to sell real estate, Zillow just showed us like they can't sell homes fast enough and they're not going to be able to pivot. And then, then individually in a market, it could cause a mini bust. Well, you know, I think that's a good example because Zillow, which was definitely a Zillow problem in this market, if you're yeah. trying to sell homes and losing money and what I would call <laughs> a ridiculous seller's market, then you obviously way overpaid and the cost of rehabbing those homes. But let's talk about the, the segments of non-primary buyers. So you got second home buyers, uh-huh. which are real. I mean, why not? Free, free money, go buy yourself a second home and maybe you'll buy a few second homes. And then you've got the private investors we already spoke about. We already spoke about the institutional investors. You got the fix and flip mom and pop guy who's going out and in the and that product is speculate speculation and a lot of it is really gutting homes and recreating on that same lot. And, then and that's we, one area you feel bullish on. Well, I, I think it's more opportunistic because a lot of the the stock in the U.S. is is now call it forty five plus years old. It's way older in the Midwest and the Northeast. So we need to replace that older stock. And so I think that you can be successful if you can scale it. And a company like Thomas James Homes, they're doing it and they're doing it at scale. There's really very few that are doing it in scale. It's more a mom and pop, but it's speculation by mom and pop. And if they're going to take on this big gut, this big rehab, they're speculating that they're going to be able to flip it at a better price. But it, it, it incrementally is what helps to push home prices up. If there's more buyers in the market that are not primary, it all supports us, which leads me to the last segment of the non-primary, which I like to call the liquidity providers, the iBuyers, the Mm -hmm. ones that are in the market paying cash to remove a unit off the market for a brief period. And that pushes up home prices. Take Phoenix, for example, Phoenix is the number one iBuyer market in the country. And the question is, what happens when the market is more challenged and it's no longer a seller's market and you actually have demand moderating, even worse case, a buyer's market, what they're, they're going to move that inventory. They're not going to say- It goes back to my example of the rent, people who own buildings that are for rent. They're going to take the rent to whatever they need to because at right. least you're not losing money. Same thing with the iBuyers. Yeah. And also the thing people don't realize, I think, is that a lot of iBuyers are acting as brokers for companies like Invitation Homes. It's not, it's not every deal, but they're just being told, go find us this many units because we want them. And so they're able to overpay because they know they don't even have to rehab it. They're just going to toss it over. Yeah, and in some cases, it sits in escrow. It doesn't even close. And they're just funneling it to the SFR guys. I think it's a bigger number than anyone appreciates. Like I, I agree. Redfin Now on a conference call, how much of your Redfin Now product are you selling to SFR? And they said zero. And they, they consciously don't. Yeah. But we talk to the open doors and the others in the market, they'll say maybe 10%. You know, when you say 10%, you really mean 20%. You know, <laughs> and, um, yeah. It just, to me, it's probably a bigger part of the market. And, you know, I, I literally couldn't believe it. I, my dad bought a house actually in Humboldt, Texas, that 2000 square foot ranch and 300 something, 300,000. And when he was at closing and him and his wife told me about it, the woman who was doing the closing, she's like, well, I own nine houses here. And I said, nine houses in that community. And maybe my dad's wife got it wrong, but Let's I was hope. Like, really? and then she's like, yeah, my boyfriend owns a bunch of houses and we rent them out. So this is, this is sort of a little uh-huh. bit of a reminiscent of, yep. of the 
The, yeah, the shutters are real. Okay, I, a couple of rapid fire things from your book that I want to highlight because we're, we're quickly running out of time. And then maybe one more, get your tinfoil hat on Kevin's crazy question if we have time. There's a quote that I loved from your book that said, don't try to manipulate people when your high quality work should be enough. I feel like that should be on people's wall behind them as they're doing work. But what, kind of give context a little bit of what, what you really mean by that. Well, I think that, you know, what we really strive for is to provide unbiased perspective. And we rely a lot of our secret sauce are the owners and operators that are C-suite executives that are giving us real, the real live sort of pulse of the market. And so we're not trying to fit it in a box to make it, you know, support a, a view we have and that we want to stick to. We'll, we'll, we'll ebb and flow with whatever the information we're aggregating. And we marry and triangulate that with the public data that we have available and, and ways for us to delineate and, and triangulate to other aspects of the housing market. So I think it's just we're, we're, we're utilizing information to help us understand where we are in the cycle, what the expectations can be on a go forward basis. And we're not going to manipulate anything. We're just going to give you, it's the, you know, I am what I am like Popeye the seller man. I'm not <laughs> manipulated, make it fit a certain view. Yeah. And, and I think also when, when you've got good quality work and data, it is very tempting, especially if you know you're good at it. That was something else I picked up. Like, you know, you're good at, you, you could manipulate people's emotions. You could get backstage at concerts. You could, you know, <laughs> do what you needed to do to, to sell an idea. It's really tempting when you have that skill set. And you have high quality work to say, but I could go here so much faster if I just, you know, adjusted this and, and maybe said this with different emphasis. And it's a certain amount of restraint that long term might pay off if you just keep yourself more centered and, and just say it like it is. Yeah, absolutely. OK, I know the answer to this question, but what drives you power, prestige or money? Well, you know the answer, but prestige has always been the driver. Yeah, I think when I was asked that question. I was initially taken back because I thought there had to be a right answer. But the truth is, is that, you know, I asked my husband and my business partner, Dennis, and they both said money. They said, if I have money, I'll be powerful and I'll be prestigious. And if you say, well, if I'm prestigious, then I'll be powerful and have money too. So you can go, it's all, it's all circular. Uh, yeah. And, and there might not be a wrong answer, but I still think prestige is the, is the best one um, because it speaks to integrity, which is something else that you talk about a lot in your book and something that you look for in people that you choose to spend time with. I was uh, pleasantly surprised to find out that you regularly get together with Hobby Hannah for breakfast at a nearby pancake house. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a big pancake uh, aficionado. Hope to be a worldwide expert one day on the subject. When you I'm go to said pancake house... Pancake house, yes. Do you do you, don't don't disappoint me, Ivy? Do you order like an egg white omelet, or do you get pancakes? What do you, what do we get? Back of three big. Pancakes. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, uh, I love it. Um, <laughs> and then the the last one from the book is you had an experience where you called out a company by name, WCI, at, at the builder conference, and Jerry was not too happy with you. Uh, kind of got in your face. I've been in not to that same, but, but there are times when I choose to use builders as an example, positively or negatively. And when I read that and your reaction to it, so I have to ask you this question. When, when do you feel like it's helpful to use a specific example by name? And when is it not? Or is there, is there, you know, I actually changed a few people's names after like a few other people read it. And yeah. I, I tried to take the high road as much as I could in the book, you know, my daughter laughed. She says, mom, this is like a total G rated book. Like nobody <laughs> really knows you. 
and you make your, you make dad like a saint and we know he's not. So, yeah, you know, right. Uh, but I think there were times that it was so blatantly bad and Jerry Starkey, sorry, Jerry, you were just an asshole. And, you know, I think therefore total assholes. Could yeah, and I don't even just mean in the book. I just mean like at that conference calling out WCI, like I, I call uh, out certain builders now for overly focusing on the transaction on buy online. They're like, we're, we're selling houses online. Like, no, you're, you're facilitating a transaction. What your customer really wants is to remove that feeling of loss of control. And so, yeah, you're charging $0 to reserve a house online in the hottest housing market ever. I, I'm not impressed with that. And that's not the problem we should be solving. Um, but just well, calling guess, out a company as, as doing something like wrong. The, the epiphany of what was going on. I mean, they were basically investor gone wild. They were a perfect example of the report we wrote in 05 called Investors Gone Wild. So I was giving example of builders that yeah. right in the thick of it. And there was no better example than WCI. So if that was a way to demonstrate to the audience and they, can, and they know WCI, then they're like, oh yeah, I yeah. get it. And that's why he was so upset. I think that's okay. That, that's encouraging to me because that's how I, when I use a specific example, I'm, I am tapping into that uh, builders like to copy like sheep thing, but it, when they're, when they just won't listen to me any other, any other way, I'm like, okay, then this builder here, <laughs> that is not right. how you should do it. That is, that I is try to protect, like I will never divulge the private builders. Like I'll mention, mm, I talk yeah. right? and the confidentiality is just, you know, I live in, in, and die by that. So I think with public companies, yeah, they're, they're public, public, they're public. And I will say whatever, not always, uh, I've been called jihad and a few other things, but I, I am what I am again. And I'll use the information that I think best suits the way to articulate what the thesis is. Okay. Final question. I won't be able to get into necessarily all the answers, but, but my concern as a former builder and someone who loves builders for what they do in the world, I think builders generally are not getting the fair amount of value from partnerships or agreements in the build for rent space, getting the land, getting it approved, getting everything in, in preparation and even building it. And then they're giving away too much to the people who just bring money to the table when money is easy to get. And so one of the things I think a lot about is just that the number of private builders that I'm working with and talking with who are, who are getting into the space, but giving up so much for, for what they're doing. But builders are ultimately going to have to find ways as affordability keeps getting compressed, I think, to find money beyond the initial transaction. But is there, is there anything else that you've heard in your, in your network or, or from talking to people beyond just getting involved in build for rent that makes you say, hmm, maybe, maybe there is another way beyond just turning uh, shelter into rental? I understand your question correctly. Is there a way for a builder to participate more in the upside rather than leaving money on the table? Is that? Okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to rephrase it, if you're doing 90% of the work, but you sure. need the money and the money's given and, and you're only then ultimately 15, 20% of the deal long-term, right. I don't think they're getting the right amount of, of equity for the value they're offering in the proposition. And so. You know, it depends on the timing of when, you know, the land was acquired and, you know, if the land has got a low cost basis, you know, I certainly wouldn't be acting as a GC and get, getting fees and working on behalf of a build for an operator. Right. But I think there's, there's, you know, let's say land that's today a large yeah, person. To get the deal done today, it might be a necessity. Well, it might be also counter cyclical for you and somewhat mm. of a, an inch. Yeah. I talked to a builder who is relatively small and reinventing himself. And he just is 
right now happy to have a BFR client who he's acting as a GC and, and he's locking in his fees because he's scared shitless that this market is going to turn. And so this way he can monetize the land that wasn't inexpensive and he's got a portion of it allocated for for sale, but he's guaranteed now, he knows he's going to make this much money on the BFR deal because he got the agreement signed up front. So that gives him peace of mind. And I think that what we saw is that in the prior downturn, there were a lot of builders that um, were actually unable to sell homes. So they actually started renting them out. Uh-huh. And so if the portfolio is a good portfolio that they have and they're cash flowing off of those renters, um, that's an alternative for them. So I know a builder in Tampa that's actually doing build for rent and is holding some of those units for his own portfolio. Right. And that could be a counter cyclical stream of cash flow for him. So I think it's really about depending upon that, how much value is embedded in the land and, and whether or not there is concern that you as the owner operator might be like getting a little concerned that the market is not sustainable. And therefore, let, yeah. me, take, let me take some chips off the table. Right. It's always concerning, though, when you're partnering with the company that is also your your rival in terms of at the end of the day, it is shelter, like you're saying. Right. So but but everyone needs to hedge their risk differently. Ivy, uh, as predicted, time has flown by. I want to be respectful of the time you've given me. But thanks so much for for stopping by. uh, And hopefully there's a couple hundred people or so who haven't heard of you who are now uh, super Ivy fans. We'll have links to uh, your company and your uh, LinkedIn bio and, and the book and all those things in the show notes. But uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Kevin. It was awesome. A lot of fun. Happy thanks. holidays, everyone. <laughs>